and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour and we are going Deadpool. This is the, uh, well, this may be the first R-rated version of <laughs> of the VFX show and I am joined by the uh, explicit Jason Diamond. How are you? Fucking awesome. <laughs> Just stick with the thing. Uh, an incredibly, an incredibly indelicate Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I am A-OK. Excellent. So, Deadpool. Uh, it's, uh, I guess I don't, I was going to say it's Marvel's, but it's almost Fox's move into, um, the, uh, more subversive, uh, uh, kind of version of the comic book. Uh, so before we get into the visual effects, as we tend to like to do, let's discuss the film itself. And this is a film that, uh, the star himself described as having a budget about equal to the hair removal budget on Avengers 2. So what do we think, Matt? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's entertaining, you know, I mean, I think that there's not much you, uh, I mean, there's a lot you could say about it. It's had a, it's been a huge success. I think it's done really well, far better than, uh, maybe even the studio was imagining it would do. Although I think they did have some sense based on that early, um, uh, sort of test footage that kind of sparked the whole, uh, you know, kind of fan fervor to get this film made. But I mean, it's, it's. I mean, it is kind of uh, what the trailer would suggest. You know, it's a it's like a snarky kind of, you know, uh, sarcastic and uh, uh, sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge at the camera version of a, of a comic book character movie, which is in keeping with the nature of that character. But yeah, it was it was a, it was it was an entertaining movie. And Jason, uh, I agree. I. I liked it. Um, I there was ups and downs. I thought it fought a little bit with wanting to be just like a super over the top <clears throat> comedy, weird comedy, and then being like, "Oh no, well we have dramatic parts too." You know, care about the character. It's it's there's dramatic. Look, he's dying of cancer and other things. Um, but it's basically yeah, it's like a Marvel movie meets Ferris Bueller's Day Off, basically. <laughs> As the uh, as, as the yes. final end credit joke uh, yes. kind of underlines, um, here's what I thought was really good about it. I thought that um, the fact that it wasn't a story about New York being destroyed, yes, thank it was you. in fact a story about um, a guy caring about his girl. I remember hearing the writers of the TV show uh, Roseanne talking, and they were talking about the structure of uh, narrative, and they were saying, "Look, the thing is, if you have a really obnoxious lead." You have somebody that, you know, you want the audience to root for. They will if they're snarky and and sarcastic and miserable, as long as they have one aspect that is absolutely immutably pure and that the audience can get behind. And so in the case of Roseanne Barr, this was that she cared about her kids. So she could be snarly and nasty and horrible as much as she wanted on it. It was all funny as long as she would take a bullet twice over for her kids. Yes. You were there. And this guy takes about 700 bullets for his (laughs) girlfriend uh, and is still there. And I think that's why the audience is kind of rooting for him. And I think one of the problems that I'm sort of projecting forward is going to be an issue with possibly Superman versus Batman is that you need to have this redeeming kind of thing. Otherwise, you just can't get behind the character. Um, But like also Superman and perhaps less Batman, um, the problem is he does also seem indestructible. And so that's, you know, like a double-edged sword because how do you care about somebody and kind of root for them if there's no chance of them... Uh, dying and you know anything you do they're going to just sort of come back in the uh, superhero kind of way so also having his girl in danger is that substitute you know vicariously you're concerned that while he himself won't be hurt um you do believe that he'd be hurt emotionally if his girlfriend is actually that's uh, that's only at the end of the third act like they don't you don't it's not like he the guy kidnaps her really like at the beginning or like, you know, after he turns over, if he goes to fight Francis and then he kidnaps a girlfriend in the whole movie, he's trying to save the girlfriend or, or, or much more, a much longer time to follow your logic, which I agree with. And I think you just uh, verbalized sort of what I might have had an issue with. And I liked it. But it's like if you have a if you have a comedy, that's just a straight kind of balls to the wall, R rated crazy comedy. And but the guy can't die, then it's basically like crank, right? Which is you don't really care about the character, but in a, a lot, but it's just a fun ride. 
So it's sort of like that. Like Deadpool to me felt like it was a super fun ride, but I what there were no I didn't connect the characters. I was just watching a really fun movie. I mean, he did walk away from her because he didn't want her to suffer him dying mm-hmm. of cancer. I mean, there were there no, were absolutely. like just in the third act that he was. Um, but then, of course, he just doesn't come back because he somehow has a belief that their their entirety of their relationship is based solely on his appearance. Right. Which I well, I mean, of- I think him being <laughs> sort of of a dick and and being pretty superficial it was probably the least of the. Uh, yeah the uh, problems but yeah and and obviously you know there's no particularly good explanation for um for some of the things that happen in the story but nevertheless you know in the sort of structure of how you're gonna have a superhero movie it is increasingly a problem i mean you know when we were watching uh, i think ant-man uh one of my kids just kept on saying just call the avengers <laughs> it's like yeah do you know what i mean like we've you got a problem why don't you just call the avengers yeah because which is you know which is what I thought was really interesting about this, that obviously Mar- Fox is is handcuffed from using a majority of the Marvel characters, only the X-Men that they own. And um, so by using the, like, downed, junky uh, aircraft, you know, Avengers helicarrier uh, thing, it's sort of a nod, like, they're not around. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's in the same universe, but it's not they're not around. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, there's I, I I thought the 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 nods to the Marvel universe. It's almost like like you were in a room witnessing Fox and Marvel arguing, and Fox was like, yeah. "Oh, okay, so we're just going to be <laughs> snarky dicks to you because you don't want to like play with us or whatever." Yeah. Marvel clearly wants all those properties back, I'm sure. So it was just sort of like, "Oh, well, we're just going to make a movie and, and like tell you guys you're a bunch of dicks." Well, actually, I have no insight into this, but. I imagine they're in a actually not. It's not just that black and white. I mean, I would imagine Marvel is in the situation with my Marvel hat on. I want it to be hugely successful because I don't want to have a Marvel oh, no, of comic book failure. But with my Disney hat on, I want that property back in house. Um, yeah. and Marvel being obviously part of Disney, um, I don't I, like. I didn't feel like um, I didn't feel like there was an argument contradiction there because I don't know you meant, but like I mean. I can't imagine a universe that they get away with these kind of things without at least someone at Marvel kind of giving them the nod that they're going to be okay because uh, otherwise it would be just tantamount to Lawsuit Central. I suppose so. I mean, I feel like that that's it's so hard to understand, you know, just from my perspective, I, I feel like the the legalities and the ownership rights over who has what character in terms of the movie rights you know, this is Fox who's doing the X-Men instead of, you know, I guess what Disney who's, who's doing Avengers. And I, it just, it gets so cryptic. It's like, I feel like I need a, you know, right. a, a, a dance card to find out who's, who's got yeah, I was going to say, introduce Sony into the mix and it gets it. Right. And then Sony has to make a movie yeah. every set, couple of years because if they don't, they lose the rights. So then you just, that's why, you know, all these companies just keep Mind making you, these movies. We'd appreciate it if it wasn't the same movie. Exactly. If Sony didn't keep making exactly the same movie, that'd yeah. be good. Like a new script. <laughs> I don't think the contract calls them to remake the same film each time. Anyway. Um, okay. So let's, let's switch, switch gears for a second and say it was fun. It was irreverent. Um, it's probably going to influence a whole new genre or rather subgenre of these kind of things. I mean, there's already talk about them making a bunch of other properties uh, edgier and, and tougher. And I, th- I think, actually, I think it was um, uh, the business had a really good insight, which was if, if uh, poor DC are unlucky, it's going to reposition Superman versus Batman as your dad's superhero movie. You know, like it's going to yeah. seem very pretentious and over serious and, you know, everything else. And if they were to have another... It kind of it would probably seem like that anyway. <laughs> well, but even more so, right? Uh, because yeah, uh, I mean, this is clearly um, obviously I'm not the first to, to point this out, but this is you know clearly um, this is the Iron Man in the sense that it was the film with the very small, not particularly well known character. Yes, if you're a fan of Deadpool, I'm not saying that you're irrelevant, but you know it's not the number one kind of property, and yet they have yeah. a funny well-done film and it suddenly becomes a hugely important um, thing. And I'm taking nothing away from Tin Miller's direction and what's going on, but, you know, let's be in, like, no doubt about this. This has, like, uh, got 
sequel kind of like central i mean they they're at the very end talking about we're going to do a sequel we haven't even cast it yet it's uh <laughs> yeah it's extraordinary funny. i mean i would argue that <laughs> iron s- man is a much larger character than deadpool but 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 iron man was the first comic book movie to have like an actual attitude to it yeah but also when it came out iron man wasn't as a grader comic book character as he now is in the in the pantheon was he I mean, yeah, I mean, in comic him books, to be... in comic books, he was certainly. I mean, he's one of the earliest. I, I think guys, he was. A, I think in the, yeah, he was a way bigger in deal the movies, than Deadpool. I mean, there was cartoon, oh, Iron Man Deadpool, but I just didn't all think all sorts of stuff for you know, in the at least in the states in the eighties and stuff like that. So, oh, okay, um, well, maybe I'm wrong about that. But let's but anyway, let's move yeah. to the visual effects for a second. So we don't have the destruction of um, of New York. Uh, and, and as the film joked, because of budget, they only have a couple of other X-Men that uh, make appearances, and I literally mean a couple. Um, <laughs> and we've got, uh, you know, some really good um, action sequences up. But there are a couple of sequences I want to drill down on. It, it isn't, you know, the 2,500 2, kind of show, but it's still got quite a lot. But right out of the gate, I thought, and I hope you guys agree with me, that the opening title sequences were both really well done and incredibly funny that they were actually poking fun at themselves uh, with their own titles as to, you know, who was in it and who was directing it and stuff. But done yeah. in such a stylistic way that it set, it set a brilliant tone for the film. I loved it. Was yeah, it? totally. I mean, it, yeah, me too. It looked like just one of the, the it looked like a, an opening title sequence to a big comic book hero movie, but yeah, then it made all the kind of, you know, I, I can't remember what it, what they, what they all said, but like the, um, each title card was sort of, you know, the, the, the snarky dismissive, like, you know, insert name here kind of <laughs> directed by some guy. <laughs> were, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was perfect. It was exactly what this movie, given the tenor of the, of the script, it was what it should have at the opening. And it was all part of the same flavor, even the packaging of the, of the character and the narrative and the, and the cinematic um, tropes that we expect were, were toyed with. Yeah, I just thought, I mean, obviously we've seen that kind of frozen momenty kind of stuff before, but it it was 85 seconds of fully CG frozen freeway crash glory. I mean, I thought having, I mean, I would have been happy with that before we even had the directed by an overpaid tool or produced by asshats. <laughs> uh, but and then having or the heroes, those... Or which, the, the writers are the actual heroes or whatever it said. Like yeah. the smartest guy yeah. or whatever. That was funny. But... but um, but I, you know, I thought it was uh, it was great to pick up the action kind of midway through the shot, um, and pick up the action like it's already happening. And then I sort of forgave them a lot because if you can already be poking fun at yourself, and but yet sort of having some really interesting production value, I, I want to see the rest of the film. Like I'm gonna, you know, really uh, yeah. get into it. I mean, absolutely, uh, absolutely sets the tone and gives the, gives the directors uh, or the filmmakers rather, you know a lot of carte blanche to play with the form if they're already saying right up front like we know this is a bunch of ridiculous shit let's just have fun uh but i like that they yeah you know they went through that whole thing and so you sort of get it and then it freezes they go back and then you end up at that moment again uh and you get to see it play out you know it's hard to do those things when you show the audience the result of something uh granted this wasn't like a huge dramatic moment in terms of plot point but uh when you show the audience something and then you go back and have to get to that moment you know you've given up a certain amount of of momentum and drama and excitement so it's it's when that's done well it's uh it's really nice to see people do that but that whole opening sequence um was awesome and of course, it was Blur that uh, that did this, um, yep. and Blur did a terrific job. But it's then not Blur that actually picks up the action, as you pointed to later, because um, uh, that sequence that starts as Blur actually gets picked up by Atomic Fiction when we actually see it playing out. So, um, you know, obviously, not a handoff isn't the first time it's happened, but uh, but it's kind of interesting. Now, what did you actually think of like the quality of the? the environment and the the quality of like the suspended cars and everything because i thought it was i thought it was pretty good i mean it didn't feel like it 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 lacked a little bit of um an even wider kind of shot 
like it felt a little constrained. But then I thought it's probably fair enough because you're starting at the macro level, so you don't need to go much wider. But I mean, I think they have. Yeah, go ahead, Matt. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, I, I totally, I, I would agree that it did feel like it, it never did go really wide. But I also kind of felt like, I mean, it, it was interesting. I feel like, and that you know, it's a tip of the hat to the to the director and the people designing the shots for the film, given the the budgetary constraints that they might have had as well. That you know, it is a smaller scope story, and so keeping the effects kind of more in the range of like what you'd expect to see in, you know, just a straight up action picture as opposed to, you know, some giant world on fire, New York being destroyed, <laughs> cliche kind of story. I think it works. It works really well. And I thought the, the stylization of the effects, like the fact that everything is kind of in that, you know, freeze frame, slow motion and, and maybe not, you know, always looking, although actually I did think it looked pretty real. It doesn't always necessarily have to look hyper real. Certainly some of the camera uh, movements aren't totally real. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like that works. It, it, it all worked in context. I felt like those aspects of it um, were woven really well into the larger sort of, you know, sense of the movie itself. Yeah. I mean, I, feel like, be- I was going to say, I, I feel like it created like there was actually, it had like a texture to it. Like everything, especially that that opening scene was like super blue and cool uh, in color temperature and and lots of shallow depth of field. Like, you know, uh, Deadpool comes flying across the frame and it's literally just a big blurred background with him, you know, coming through in sharp focus. You don't see that a lot in these in the superhero movies because they want you to see the building on fire, you know, that they that's in the background or the giant spaceship or the what have you. And that's, and that's fine. But it was interesting that, that this felt like a, like you're saying, Matt, it, it felt like a smaller movie without being small. Right. Well, and almost like the, almost like the effects are framed for the joke, yeah. you know, that Deadpool's going to make his, his deadpan Deadpool snarky joke, like, and, and the action sequences and the effects are framed and, and, uh, designed specifically so that he can, you know, pop his head out of, of the moonroof of the truck upside right. down or whatever, and say, "Did I leave the stove on?" or whatever he says. Right. You know, yeah. From a technical point of view, so they they obviously shot a section of freeway which was uh, in Vancouver. Though I think the city behind uh, wasn't meant to be Vancouver; it was more like of a hybrid. And I think they shot a background plate on about five or seven reds to get a kind of look in every direction. But what's kind of interesting, I think, is that what you're doing in Atomic Fiction is um, effectively designing that sequence for the flipping of the car, blah, 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 off previs that was done by Blur. But when Atomic does it, it then has to hand the access assets back to Blur because Blur, of course, does the the title sequence. Um, but they're not, they're not on the same, like, pipeline. So you've got one doing it, uh, you know, like a Katana lighting pipeline in Maya, and the other one's doing it in... Um, in Max, because typically Blur has a bigger uh, game cinematics focus, that kind of thing in their in their um, portfolio, mm-hmm. and so it's not uncommon for a company like that to be in Max. Obviously, Atomic Fiction is a more of a traditional effects um, pipeline, though obviously they do a lot of stuff on the cloud. But that means that they're in Maya. But then, even when they hand it back back to Blur, um, Blur has the problem that the assets aren't high enough res, and so then they have to kind of go in and and uh, sort of soup them all up. And all of this, as we say, without having like sort of a mega budget to waste, uh, trying to do it. Um, and, and I don't even think it's the biggest sequence in the whole film. I mean, it might be one of the most impressive because it sort of leads the, the count. But actually, it is pretty contained in one sense. Um, but when we come back to that sequence later in the film, we, of course, get the advantage of having uh, Colossus turn up, um, which really now does add a major, add a new visual effects element. Matt, what did you think of Colossus? Our, uh, I don't think we ever saw him when he wasn't Colossus, right? He's only, he's only Colossus, right? Like, is he, is he ever, is he ever not? I don't think he is. Char- no, I don't that's know that character. Yeah. No, he think, can be. No, he can change. Yeah. But, I, but I don't think we saw him oh. in the film, did we? No, he? only in the X-Men movie. No, no. He changes once. In yeah. One shot. Uh, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought he, you know, he was, he was cool. Like, I think the, um, uh, the, the look that he had and like his, his kind of <laughs> like almost, uh, antithetical kind of character personality where he's sort of not as into, 
he wants everything to be okay and he wants to play by the rules and stuff. And with his thick uh, Russian accent, I thought that was pretty funny. The only things about him that I thought were, um, were just were weird. And sometimes it, it made him look weird. And maybe this is the character. I, I just, I, I don't know enough about the actual Colossus uh, comic book character, but there were times where his, like the, the length of his torso and then the length of his legs and the breadth of his shoulders, like they took on proportions that looked um, like, I mean, I, I know he's supposed to be like a, a metal humanoid, but he, he didn't even really look like a person almost. He sort of almost had like an orangutan kind of <laughs> like body proportions in a couple of the far shots when he's walking. And I don't know if that's what he's supposed to no. look like or no, he's just a big know. dude, but, 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 but the but the ref, the the metallic rendering of him and stuff uh, and the the whole way they dealt with the um you know like the the lines uh, that separate the different sort of layers of his metal skin and stuff and the the sort of um, broken up reflective quality of the environments and stuff I thought were really cool I mean it was a neat a neat look yeah I liked the pitting. Yeah, I liked it. like he had like a lot of pitting on his on the metal. Yeah, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. gave it some age and history because in the comic book, I'm a huge Colossus fan. At least I was in the '80s when I was reading the X Men, and I always liked him. And but in the comic book, he's drawn like shiny the whole time, pretty much. Um, so I like that that he had a little more, you know, sort of interact container his, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, his body had a little more interaction with the environment, or seemingly like it had at some point. My only problem with him was. His voice, to me, felt... Oh, really? <laughs> I, I mean, I liked his voice. The performance was fine. But the mix, the way it was, at least in the theater I saw it, it was so loud. Uh, it, like, mm. it didn't seem like it was in the mix. Like, it felt dubbed, even though, obviously, it... Oh, I didn't I didn't get that at my screening. Yeah. Like, I was... It, it yeah, just kind of jumped out at me, and I was just like, that's... Everything else sits in really nice in the audio mix, and then I was just like, that sounds really weird. Like, it's just slapped in there. Uh, so having said that, of, of all of us, you've got the best ears. I mean, the most uh, kind of attuned to that stuff. So I'll take your word for it. I have to listen again. Um, but yeah, he was um, he was great. So one of the things that I found, is he in the comic books that he just has these uh, like blank eyes? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You mean that's Deadpool sort of or Colossus? Slight... Colossus. Colossus. Yeah. yeah, his eyes are just like a single color, I think. Yeah, because I found that sort of to be not off-putting, but, you know, like it made him his face seem more robotic. I mean, as a character, I liked how he was effectively the, um, you know, Captain America to Deadpool's kind mm-hmm. of joking, smart-ass Iron Man in that, you know, <laughs> and especially having a character that big and forceful being kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what's your manners, <laughs> is, um, is very funny. But um, yeah, I think it's a really hard job to have a big shiny metal character. And we've discussed this before with other characters. The biggest problem about it is that all the animation tricks for the muscles and the squash and stretch and the way that you'd have secondary motion from like things flapping and moving after with inertia and stuff all go away when they're meant to be metallic. You you really want a rigid thing, but you need it to move. You've got biceps on the character, but we don't want to see them bulge in a way that makes them not look like metal. It's exactly the same with the face, right? Like, I mean, the face is yeah, yeah, is extremely hard to get the balance between having an expression and just seeming like a rubber kind of piece of I don't know what really. Um, so, so I think he rem- that he reminded me a lot of that character from um, uh, from the first Thor movie. I think the oh, I, yeah. I can't remember the name of that thing. Yeah, the I mean, just vi- visually, which I which I would take as a i mean i mean that as a as quite a compliment i really like well the that had the same lines that. didn't it it had the same kind of yeah yeah it was more overlapped uh, overlapped shingles more a little in, in yeah form. and that was more gort like um yeah, yeah. what yeah. was interesting about <laughs> we we did a story on it for with wired on our thing we did for Wired. anyway so one of the things we're doing when we're talking about it was that uh, now you'd know this from the comic books apparently those lines are always meant to be parallel in the comic book, they're just drawn that way. Yeah. And they had an enormous amount of texturing issues to get around that problem because you bend the arm and suddenly the lines aren't parallel and it's all kind of meant to not look parallel because that would let you visually cue the compression that's just gone on as the elbow bend kind of thing. And yet that's not what you want. So they had right. to 
really play with that at the texturing stage. Except in a comic book, you know, nothing's ever moving. So, you know, those guys are like, oh, yeah. It's I easy. mean, no, who's ever going to end it? And this is never going to be anything other than a comic book. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, he he was good. And what was his, um, what was the girl's name? The uh, character that... Nega, um, Negasonic Teenage Warhead. Name, yeah. you know where the name so, comes from? <laughs> no. No. It's a Monster Magnet song. The band Monster <laughs> Magnet. They took the name from... From her, I had I had not I never really read the current <laughs> X Men stuff. So when they said, "Oh, my name's Negasonic Teenage Warhead," I was like, "Okay, either Monster Magnet took the name from her, or they took the name, you know, from them." But then I just looked it up, and they took it from Monster Magnet. <laughs> hmm. um, yes, well, I, I thought her visual effects were quite good as well. They were a bit more what I'd call classic X Meny kind yeah. of, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of get this fireball-y look happening and this um, bunch of sort of shockwavey stuff happening. Nevertheless, uh, the actress seemed to integrate well into the visual effects and thus into the scene. So. It looked it looked really nice. I liked, like the plasma ball that, f- that formed around mm-hmm. her was really nice and had some good texture and volume to it. It didn't look like a, like a soap bubble, like it had um, some depth right. to it. Yeah. Yeah, and... Uh, and the other thing that I guess we should point out is that in most of the sequences um, that you'd have seen in the film where Deadpool mask on is doing stuff, uh, they actually had to reanimate effectively a uh, rig for Deadpool's face because while you could obviously have Ryan uh, Reynolds standing there with a mask on, you couldn't then perceive much in the way of kind of talking or emotion because sure. it just, you know, sort of blotted him out. So. Uh, some people I was talking to were quite surprised, non-visual effects people, that uh, Weta had, you know, 250 face shots on Deadpool because they were like, what? Why, why would you even need to do that? Just put on a mask. But it makes sense when you're trying to communicate a range of uh, emotions. And also, you know, the camera's on him, right? It's like a, a Ryan Reynolds close-up and they're not trying to hide Ryan Reynolds, but the suit doesn't let his performance kind of come through as much as they would have liked. Yeah, you're not going to see eyebrows and, and stuff in the, the mask. Sorry, Matt, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no. I was just gonna say. I thought that that whole thing of those, like the blend shapes and stuff on the face, like getting it to have, like that additional element of the sort of Ryan Reynolds esque uh, performance piece. Like it really, it made a huge difference. Like in something, a character like that. When you're, it, it's like the Spider Man mask, you know, in that sense, right? Where mm. you do get uh, potentially the opportunity for some more expression and the Deadpool one's kind of unusual because it, it, it appears to be kind of like a more, mostly like a leather, like a two piece kind of leather thing. But given uh, those extra changes in the, the eyes and the, the brow ridge and cheekbones and stuff, and just having a little bit more expression in the eyes and stuff made it, I think it made a really big difference. Can I, can I say it, my, it was cool. It was cool how they set that up. Can I say my favorite, combination of a joke and visual effects element sure the the tiny hand i thought was hilarious oh, yeah. <laughs> when he cut his hand off in yeah. the uh and then yes, it grew back with the, the yeah when he put the the tiny hand on the blind lady's face and then she's like why is your hand so small <laughs> okay can i just can i confess something here <laughs> now just stop me but was that a hura that was the blind lady playing that role um the actress uh, that plays... I, th- I think it was... Hold on. I'm going to tell you right I really now. hope it was because... Yeah. No, I recognized her name when uh, when I saw it in the... In the I credits. meant to look that up before the show. There was an amazing piece I was watching of her talking about how Martin Luther King got her to stay in Star Trek, which is a whole other show. But, man, I watched that and I had so much admiration for her um, as an actress and as a, um, as a person of color dealing with that and when she did No, it's not Ahura. It's uh, Leslie Uggams. Who right. was so like, where do I know her from? Uh, okay. Um, Marcus Welby, Roots, ah, okay. Love Boat, yeah, so I'd Magnum say, P.I., Cosby Show. She seemed world. familiar and I was trying to think... Um, where I knew her from, and I couldn't think, and I just had that. Uh, well, it was hard to tell head. who it was. Which she had those really big dark glasses on yeah. too, which really hid her face in a lot of way, a lot of the scenes. But yeah. she was actually a great character, though. She was so funny. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, so the other thing that uh, happened, of course, is that uh, Ryan Reynolds' character 
Sans mask is uh, like an avocado, had sex with an avocado, I think, <laughs> uh, um, kind of burnt uh, look. Let's discuss that for a second because um, notwithstanding the sort of torture sequence and how uncomfortable I was during some of that, um, it, it looked pretty painful being disfigured the way that uh, he was. And um, and that whole fire sequence when that happens and the way he kind of gets uh, uh, impaled. Again, I thought it worked pretty well. Horrific skin scars. And uh, Lord only knows I have an enormous amount of respect for anyone in the real world who has to uh, live through any kind of thing like that. But So I'm not making light of burns, but I mean, well, they sh- the show did. They made enormous light of him being burned up. And uh, I can tell and, you uh, how... No, go ahead, sorry. Well, no, I'm just saying, like, they were making fun of it. I don't have yeah. any humor in somebody that suffers burns, but... No, I was going to say, I could tell you that um, my dad was wounded in Vietnam and has burns all over his, well, I think both arms, but his left arm is looks like that. And uh, and his one of his ears is half gone and whatever, and he's fine with it at this point. But growing up... Uh, you know, not knowing that that was something different growing up, I was totally comfortable with it. And I have to say that's the way they do it in the movie is 100%. Like, it looks accurate. Like, they did a really good job on uh, on making it look like that without being cartoony. Like, Freddy Krueger, you know, is, like, super over mm. the top. But that's a horror movie, so it's got to be over the top. And this, in this case, obviously, it's a comic book movie. It can be over the top, but it actually served an emotional point because he was burned right so yeah it's so it's it's it was really well done and that macro shot stuff that was done by rodeo i mean i mean it's horrific the skin stuff but like their reference on it was rotting fruit and magnet maggot eaten meat and uh kind of burnt skin it's just like torture stuff yeah um uh, but done as a thing in nuke with a bunch of layers uh, and uh, stuff mapped over the top. It, hmm. it, it again. I think it worked, looked good, and um, and it's it's certainly, yeah. I mean, it's the film is kind of gory, and that was not the worst of it, right? <laughs> the uh, the little hand thing was was funny, but <laughs> the cutting the hand off. But I guess before that, even the multiple head splatter oh. when he's doing the bullet countdown, uh, the twelve bullet thing. I mean. Yeah. Well, and then the broken, I thought the broken limbs yeah. uh, on the Deadpool, the broken, like the f- compound fractured leg and, the, mm. and the, I mean, that, that was just so gruesome. And that to continue to sort of have no, um, really not much of an expression of pain and to keep kind of making a joke about it was, it's, it, I don't know. It, it was one of those things too, where like I could appreciate <laughs> my, my hesitation at the beginning of the show is just like, I can appreciate like the humor of the movie and I definitely enjoyed watching it. But at the same time too, like I just felt kind of, it felt a little bit like soulless in some ways to me. Like I kind of felt dirty after enjoying it, you know? <laughs> do you think yeah. that scene, do you yeah. think that section of, of all the limbs breaking like that was a nod to the black Knight, the Monty Python black Knight? I, I was waiting for uh, that, right? Maybe. I was like, come back here, I can bite you. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you'd have to think that that was uh, somebody that would have uh, teed that up. Um, there, there was apparently a lot of joking going on between DD and Luma over these uh, incredibly gross sequences and, you know, how much blood. I mean, it wasn't the bloodiest film I saw this summer, US summer. I mean, I think um, Hateful Eight took, you know, back to trucker uh, and then said <laughs> we need another truck of blood. Um, that first truck wasn't enough. <laughs> Um, but I know that on one of those shots, uh, I think it was the hand was being cut off. They were like, we just need to have more blood. Okay. It's like, I think the quote we got on FX guide was, okay, guys, we've lost two buckets of blood now. We're good. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty gross. I mean, the thing is, you know, if you, ha- if you don't have the spectacle to work for and you don't have the big shots and you don't have loads of characters, you know, you use what you got. And, uh, I do feel to a certain extent that is, the artist's, I guess, irony that, you know, many artists do their best work when they've got the limitations and when they don't have the limitations, that's obviously when the director that had done the great student work kind of comes unstuck because they can do anything and they have too much money to do whatever they want. And this film felt like it was picking its battles and then just using what it had and the effect sequences were enough, but they weren't, you know, uh, they, they would have obviously been 
bigger, wider staged stuff had this been at uh, at a level as I imagine its sequel will be funded uh, with even more money. Hey, um, the character in the sequel that they mentioned, Cable. Jason, you can tell me this. Cable. Yeah, what's his deal? I forget. He's I like, don't... I think he goes through time, right? He's like some kind of... Yeah, I can't um, remember his uh, his specific thing. I I I, I want to say that he that I first read a, read his stuff in the first Secret Wars thing, but I, I I'm confusing it with maybe with another series. Uh, I'm sure someone uh, listening knows better than I do, but I, I remember Cable as a character, but I'm sure the one they're referring to is probably a more modern version than the 80s cable if i'm remembering yeah i mean no, nobody had nobody has cable anymore that's true they cut the cord <laughs> yuck 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 yuck, yuck. <laughs> uh, i'm just looking up apparently he is the son of cyclops and uh and uh jean gray's clone okay i didn't know she had a clone but mm. there you go um <laughs> From it's like possible, days of our lives. From a possible future timeline. Yeah, exactly. And he had am- <laughs> he didn't he had amnesia and then he uh married his sister. No. Um yeah. So okay. <laughs> First appeared as an infant in Uncanny X Men in January nineteen eighty six. Well there you go. Hmm. Um okay, so uh so that would be an interesting thing, um, though, you know, you have the same problem, right? Like uh, I was talking about before with if you have a problem where a character can't die, as soon as you get time travel, it's like, we'll just use it for everything. You know, um, in Harry Potter, what the heck did uh, Hermione do by getting rid of the thing that let her be in two places at once that had come in really handy for the rest of the series? Um, yes. So I don't know how they're going to handle time travel, but I'm sure it'd be pretty funny. Well, it'd be interesting to um, see if so, the tone switches in the sequel or if they if they try to maintain the, the sort of comedy elements... Uh, I think they'd have to maintain the comedy elements only because I, I just feel like that's what this, that's what this character is. Right. I mean, like, I mean, unless he's just like, you know, I think unless Ryan they go super dark really and make hard. him like, yeah, I think Ryan Reynolds fought really guy. hard for this character to be this character the way he is like, you know, to not make the sanitized version. I had completely oh, sure. forgotten about him in, in, uh, in Wolverine though. I did enjoy the Wolverine jokes. I mean, that were pretty funny. Um, was Deadpool I mean, that was in very Wolverine? Funny. Yeah. Oh, I didn't see it. Yeah, absolutely. And the, um, the last Wolverine, and that's why there the, were so the many. One where he's no, no, the Japan? first, the first origin one. No, no, the first oh. origin one. Oh. Hmm. oh did I? And uh, that's why there were all these uh, killer jokes. Well, that and of course the Green Lantern jokes. Yeah, well that. Um, yeah, no, he was Wade Wilson in uh, 2009 as uh, in Wolverine Origins. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so the thing I was going to say is that uh, I I haven't heard much of this discussed because I think it's so well done. Um, but I'm going to give just complete acting chops to Ryan Reynolds because I'd seen him last in Woman in Gold where he plays just a kind of really nice, almost, um, you know, goofy kind of uh, constrained person. And in Woman in Gold, which is a completely sort of different film with a very different subject matter, um, he is, you know, you'd think he's like that in real life. You see uh, Deadpool, you think he's like that in real life, which has got to be the hallmark of great acting, right? It's just, uh, I think it, it comes off as if he's just like this, but I think he just does a really good job acting like Deadpool. I'll and, add uh, another movie to that non-Deadpool style of acting is Mississippi Grind which uh, some right. people I know made. And it's him. The whole movie is just him and Ben Mendelsohn, which is another reason to watch it. But, I mean, if you can hold your own next to Ben Mendelsohn, you're good. And he... Uh, and this was only like last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it just came... Yeah, it was out last year. It's great. It's a great film, and he's really good in it. Right. It's a poker film, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a or road a, film. One of them's in it's poker. like a poker road yeah. film. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, I know that you know he suffered, probably rightly. It was it was only true and appropriately that he suffered uh, after <laughs> he came out with Green Lantern. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know it took a lot to come back from that. But he's clearly got range. I mean, yeah. serious range. Can we throw a shout and, out um, also to Marina Baccarin, who played his girlfriend? Because she's awesome. Yeah, she was good, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, she was the she was the alien like head alien in the V remake. 
here in the states, and she was also the uh, yeah. she was also the wife on Homeland. Uh, yes, on and on Homeland, right. she was so good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she obviously <laughs> just suffered tremendously for a really long time on Homeland. Yeah, um, but <laughs> just nothing ever went that girl's way. But yeah, and no, I thought she was really, really good. She, uh, yeah. And I'd completely forgotten where I'd seen her. I mean, I knew yeah. I knew her, but uh, but Homeland, I can spaced on that. Yeah, and even T.J. Miller too, the guy who plays the bartender. He's he's really good. Uh, that guy's so funny, yeah. man. I love. He that is guy. very funny. Yeah, I actually expected to see him more. I think you'd probably you'd put money on him appearing more in the sequel because uh, yeah, he riffed really well, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he was a scene stealer in like every. I mean, because he just got to be like you know. The joke, the joke man, you know, to, yeah. the, to the straight Deadpool. <laughs> and yet he it was, was so good. He was quite, he wasn't like hunting the laughs, but he, I, I agree. He really stole the scene. He wasn't, yeah. uh, he wasn't, I don't know how an actor does that, but yeah. How do you just have that kind of presence on screen? Anyway. Um, so were there any other sequences in the film that uh, we liked or disliked in terms of visual effects now? Uh, the end sequence, for example, we haven't discussed that much. The, uh, the actual fight on the, uh, on the side of the disused carrier or the crashed carrier, I liked. I like. I thought that whole sequence was good. Um, uh, I liked how he got up there when she, you know, she pushed him up there on the on the hood of the car or whatever. But yeah, you know, at a certain point when the thing starts to tip and all the stuff's falling off, it's cool. But then there was something about the scene where the physics were off slightly for some of the stuff falling it felt like but i couldn't couldn't quite pin, pinpoint anything it was just a i was just a vibe i mean it was st- i liked the sequence uh and it looked really good but occasionally you'd see something fall a little weird i think yeah i thought the effects were good in that final sequence the only thing i would say about it i guess I mean, I think it, you know, it worked. It told the story like it, it was in keeping with kind of the scale that we were coming. It was it was I think it was trying to be a little bit bigger yeah. in, in scope. But um, I actually kind of feel like somehow it's a, it's a weird thing, but I just felt like the staging of the events that transpire in that space actually made it feel like a smaller event than that, uh, you know, sort of. A car chase sequence at the beginning like i somehow feel like that maybe the kinetic nature of the camera movement and that they were in vehicles that were moving or i don't know it just it, it felt like it it felt anticlimactic in a way to me well i think it felt a little there. bit like that yeah i mean i had this whole thing about um uh teenage warhead what, what where is she like she just seemed to sort of stop contributing for a while and then kind of reappeared again when it was convenient but she was tweeting on her phone <laughs> yeah Hadn't she thrown the phone away by that stage? I think so. Um, but yeah, it, I, I sort of agree. I mean, it was clearly like a not a big thing. That being said, I think it having it up on two levels made a big difference. Like if it was just, you know, I felt like uh, the original Thor town, you know, meet, that felt exactly the same way to me, kind of small and yeah, not yeah. very consequential. Yeah, ra- when they're in Radiator Springs in yeah, Thor 1. Yeah, Radiator Springs. It was just not very um, in ABBA outfits, yeah. So, man, I'm really not up on that film, am I? I don't, I don't remember hating it as much as I always say I do on this show. But <laughs> I like, kind of liked Thor too. Like the actor, great Australian. But, um, yeah, the first well, one was... The, um, <laughs> the thing... Um, I was fine with most of the events, but the thing that was um, because the girlfriend was the only human in the scene, really the rest of them were mutants um, and could sustain a lot more damage when he threw her in the like uh, capsule and she fell off whatever, however many tens of stories that thing was. Oh yeah, totally. And he, he he just, you know, pulled her out of it. I don't care how much padding is in that thing; you would be flat as a pancake. So, yes, I know it's a yes, comic book were, movie, but yes. you know, I'm just just saying. Uh, but I did like when yep, no, Gina I'm Carano fought with uh, with Colossus. That was awesome to see somebody, you know, like instead of having Colossus just oh, yeah. you know, Hulk everything, it was great to see her be able to punch him and send him across the room. 
Yeah, no, that was that was very funny, especially kind of his reaction uh, to that happening. I think my problem, you know, is this, this staging thing that we've sort of described, which is is really hard to stage um, uh, a visual effects play out like that when everybody it, it didn't have the uh, sort of fast cutting kinetic kind of um, thing. But I guess maybe the thing I missed, or if I was trying to work out how I would have done it differently. Uh, George Miller, when he was talking, was describing the whole idea that it's really good to give the audience a threat, but then have them focus on another threat and then have the threat that they were aware of, but they kind of temporarily forgotten, come back and and then you're kind of playing a different, oh my God, what about that? And it sort of flips around and you have to set that up incredibly well. So it's not just a character standing back waiting until the first guy gets punched out and then he steps in. And uh, so they do that classically in Mad Max where they're on the rails and, you know, the thing not the last one but the one before or two before it and it's flying down the rails and a car's coming the other way and max is trying to get the the shotgun pellet that's on the bonnet of the um, rig and Mm -hmm. and is he going to get shot and is he going to fall off the front and all of this time there's a car that's coming from behind him he doesn't even know about that's going to collide and smash and it's just like this multiple kind of drama and you get so caught up in it and then you miss the the thing that you already knew about that was going to happen or if you don't you suddenly go hang on behind you and I didn't get that from any of the staging in uh, in this. It was really a bit more like, okay, we're going to do something over here, then we're going to do something over here, yeah. and then we're going to well, fall off and do something Yeah, there here. wasn't a lot of overlap well, yeah, that's, that's a good, story. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that you make there, Mike, too, that it's like if you think about that staging, though, that you're describing in the um, Mad Max 2 or the Road Warrior, like when you think about that um, sequence, one of the reasons why the staging there can function in that way is because there is a – there's a linear um, progression that they're making like physically across the landscape while all this other stuff is transpiring. And in the staging in the final battle in Deadpool, one of the things that I kept thinking of is it, as, as we're talking about it tonight, one of the things I keep thinking of is how it's, it's almost like um, the thing that you see in a lot of martial arts movies when, you know, you have uh, the, the main hero in a martial arts film and he's all of a sudden surrounded by like, you know, half a dozen like martial arts experts and they all kind of come at him one at a time, time. right? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like all taking him at once when they could probably, you know, do some serious damage. And this kind of felt like that in a way and that it was staged in a fixed location. And so they, the, one of the problems is that then you're sort of trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to do with this character at this moment, this character at that moment, how does this character transition to that character? And so it just, it's a little bit, um, it just is a little bit clunkier way to stage a big ax. And yeah, exactly. And I think it's harder to come up with a way to piece that together just narratively and visually in, uh, in sort of a filmmaker, a filmmaking language, you know? I mean, it, it felt like they were at the, you know, evil Dick Dastardly guy tying the girl to the railway tracks and uh, the train's coming and, you know, the hero has to get past the evil Dick Dastardly guy to get the girl before the train hits. Only in this case it's oxygen running out and her in the chamber and it's not a very inventive um, solution and it doesn't solve your problem of having like all of these superheroes or rather all of these mutants there that could be interacting and doing stuff. And I think I think where you... I mean, it's very hard to criticize, you know, sorry, very easy to criticize and very hard to sort of pull this off. But if you can get up something that you really need to play off individualities of those characters to enable the thing to work, then it becomes really interesting. And so we like it, I think, when he gets thrown up by the back of the, whatever it is, wing of a bit of metal. It's like, you know, I can't get up there even though I'm indestructible because I can't fly. And, you know, and so you want that sort of a more complicated sequencing that only allows things to play out and this character's in jeopardy, but that one wouldn't be, but they're at the wrong position kind of thing. And then when you get that and you get really enthralled in it, I think it's good. I mean, I do um, – I, I mean, I liked it. I just don't think it was as strong, a, a, even though they're under the constraints that they were under. Um, it did feel a bit like they're, let's have one character fight one character. When they're done, the next one will step up. But the, Yeah, I mean, in, in the context of the movie at the end, like for an ending thing, I mean, it, it works. Like, I mean, we're just – I mean, I think we're just saying like, well, you know – it works, but like it, it maybe maybe there are ways in which uh, who knows what the issues were in terms of constraints with budget and all that kind of stuff too. So I mean, you know, it's it still works, and it was still fun to watch. It just you know, thinking watching it, I, that was the one thing I kept thinking was uh, this could be a little bit more dynamic, or it didn't feel like it topped what we'd already well, seen. Probably a mixture of blocking you know? and writing. 
most likely. You know what I mean? Although the blocking comes from the writing, yeah. so maybe it's just a writing thing. But you know, but you see earlier in the film, like we were talking about with the car chase, uh, was very complex and had a lot of overlapping stuff because you had cars coming from different directions and he was in here but he he only had yeah he only had a certain number of bullets so there's a constraint of one storyline does he pick up another gun does he use something else he shoots all three guys with one bullet like you know there's there's a complexity to that even though it's just a, a linear car chase a la your mad max reference so it's not like i mean we know that they're capable of it right so there's just whatever happened that derailed them slightly from that complexity at the end. I mean, I, again, I agree with you guys. I, I enjoyed it. It was fun and there was still great dialogue and, and it pushed it forward. But, um, I think we're all just trying to figure out how to make it even better. Right. Yeah. You know what they could have done? They could have, uh, described, they could have introduced, um, like a breaking the fourth wall kind of thing, right? Like he could have done that, in the end sequence. I don't think he did, right? He used it really effectively earlier yeah. on. Um, but at that end sequence, we'd lost, I think. And if he'd done something where he was trying to explain something to the audience while then having to re-engage the bad guy or something, that could have made it right. uh, that bit more... Um, because I think this is the only time I've ever seen a, a comic book sort of in this current genre break the fourth wall. Has anyone else done that? No, I don't think so. Spoken to the audience? No. I like that he said and we that broke the powerful, fourth wall twice. That's like 16 walls. 16 walls. <laughs> I feel I feel like the uh the first uh, Sam Raimi or the sec- first or second Sam Raimi Spider-Man there was some element of that. Not it was never overt, but it was like there's really? a scene where I think they're playing f- like uh Simon and Garfunkel like feeling groovy or something and he's like walking through the park after he gets like the the date with Mary Jane or something. I'm trying to remember. And there's a, he's like walking in slow motion towards the camera. And I think he looks directly at the camera. And I don't know if memory serves. Certainly not over as this though. Well, no. no. <laughs> yeah. He, he doesn't works. talk yeah, to the camera. That's why I thought, he doesn't talk to the that's audience. That's why I was saying sort of the Ferris Bueller's thing is I think Ferris Bueller's is one of the few movies that in, in the comedy realm outside of maybe high fidelity mm-hmm. that really pulls off a, uh, speaking yeah. to the camera and having it work and not feel weird. Yeah. 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 I find it's incredibly powerful in um House of Cards. Sure. Yeah. You know, where uh, you know, you just have this moment where he'll suddenly and I think it was the first show of the second series and you just hadn't done it and you were like, Oh, they're not gonna do it in this series and then suddenly at the very end he looks at the camera and goes, You thought I'd forgotten about you? And it was just like, Yes I did. Oh thank God <laughs> Well, and it's so deftly handled in that too, like in the way that it's sort of just so sort of casually inserted into the scene. And, you know, the other actors are still sitting there and he just sort of, yeah. the camera kind of comes in close on him and he sort of turns to the camera and starts talking to you. And it, it's so well done. I mean, it's it's rare to see it done that well where it's in a drama, you know, whereas in this one, it's, it's much more of a, a it's... Uh, an action farce, you know? And so when he does it in this film, it's not as, um, it's great. I mean, I think it's perfect for what they were trying to do, but it, it didn't, uh, it was never really shocking or anything like that. It was like, Oh yeah, cool. Okay. (laughs) We're going there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, any shots you didn't like anything where you thought, and look, if any film of this kind of level deserves a, a free pass, but they didn't have a huge budget, but do you think that they, there was some sort of points where that showed? trying to think if anything i don't think anything really stuck out as being uh as being there's certainly nothing bad in the film visual effects wise uh i i i'd go the other way and say overall i really liked the i think they took a unique approach to the visual effects in general and i think that the mm-hmm. the i'll just call it the shallow depth of field vibe that you got from a lot of the visual effects, I think you don't get in a lot of these bigger movies. And I kind of liked it. It gave it a different feel and it gave it, like I was saying before, like a texture, like, like the, the plate behind him had like a, like uh, a vibe to it outside of just composition. Like it gave it a thing. And 
And I appreciated that because it sort of set itself apart. Like, hey, we're not a Marvel movie, uh, although we are of the same ilk. And the characters, we're doing our own, you know, thing. Because, you know, Marvel has a formula. Of, I like the Marvel movies, but certainly there's a formula to how they're doing their films. Uh, and I think this was cool to see this sort of take a step out. And it, and it matches, I think, Tim Miller's kind of vibe um, and what Blur does. Um, which is <laughs> nice to see that he that he can he can uh, you know he he was uh, I hate to use the word allowed but you know he was able to keep his sensibility in the film. Yeah, it's yeah, I would on. concur. I mean, I I don't know that there's any uh, shots that didn't really tie in nicely with uh, the rest of the work in the film. I felt like it was pretty even and and uh, everything looked pretty solid. But I would. I would totally agree with you, Jason. I think that 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 kind of stylized quality that you get by having the depth of field and the slow motion and the kind of almost freeze frame uh, camera move uh, here and there, it it really gave it a unique look and feel and and texture. I think is really the is the right word there for sure. And um, I thought it was cool. I, I liked it. I thought that was it definitely set it apart in yet another way in terms of the visual effects execution, not just in the, the kind of snarky. And at times for me, I'll just be honest, like this isn't really the movie for me. Like it's a, it's so bro. It's such a bro movie. <laughs> like, I just don't know that I just don't know that I'm in that. I'm, I'm, I'm just past that demographic where for me, this is a little too like, uh, you know, 17 to, you know, 23, uh, age demographic maybe in terms of it's it's cool you know <laughs> like it's not it, it wasn't it didn't quite resonate for me in that same way but um yeah my, my 17 year old but, 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 was the best film that she'd seen my, my yeah but i mean I, but i mean i i go ahead oh i was just gonna say you i didn't get take it. your nine year old no, you? you couldn't no okay <laughs> yeah i mean i i, I, I get why no well yeah I get, I get why it's like, you know, doing so well and I, I can appreciate it on that level. I just, you know, I just, re I just have to confess like it's, it wasn't really for me, you know, but that's I cool. liked it, but there are <laughs> films that are what I call gross out comedies where I feel exactly the same way where I'm like, I am just so not this film's audience. Um, can I <laughs> joke about two sort of, I don't know, not spoilers, but just bits of trivia or yeah, whatever yeah. I thought really fun. So Greg LaSalle is the guy at Digital Domain who uh, was one of the guys that won the SciTech Award for the development of the MOVA facial capture system. And it's actually Greg. Um, some people might think he's he's an actor first and foremost, but he, he's actually, um, you know, the team that developed the rig. Um, they spray actors' faces with um, a splatter of info, like a UV material. And then when you get the capture done in the stages, you get such an accurate... Um, our representation of the face. And we've written about this and the direct drive system they've got. And it's really, really fascinating. And it's very clever. And I'll just point to one part of it, which is if you think about it, they're reconstructing the face with this high frequency splatter that's over it. You can't see to the naked eye, but that doesn't solve the problem of, you know, frame to frame cohesion on the mesh. So you can form a mesh on one frame, but how do you get that mesh on the same on every frame? And how do you connect them all up? You can track them, but that's not the same thing, right? You're reconstructing the face um, theoretically on every frame, but by the same token, you've got the same mesh overall. So it's good math. It's good, complicated stuff. And DD deserves a lot of credit for it. But Greg with his other hat on, being the doing the facial capture work for Colossus, <laughs> apparently had a lot of trouble performing the character vomiting after uh, things that Ajax gets <laughs> yeah. their head blown off, you know, and the... Yeah, <laughs> so apparently Greg had to hyperventilate and uh, really like just you know, almost like kind of make himself sick to actually get a face that they could capture for this super high frequency capture, which then gets retargeted uh, to Colossus's face. Um, and the only other one I wanted to point out was I, I, I liked a lot of the gags in this that aren't the obvious super ones. And the ones that I like, the sort of ones I liked, we haven't got time to mention them all, but the fact that he just filled up that ammo bag with like about a hundred guns and has that oh, yeah. conversation <laughs> yeah. with the taxi driver and then he just leaves it in the cab. Yeah. It's just like, because there are just too many shows where there's sort of an infinite amount of bullets and, and you know, everything just so I thought it was just like really funny. Having things go wrong yeah. like that was just uh, really endearing and speaks to them knowing that the audience isn't going to go, why, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. Why was that not edited out? You know, it's like... It's uh yeah, I so there is yeah, an intelligent nod great. to the audience. 
Um, okay, well, that sort of finishes out for this week, but I, I do think it's uh, it's a good film if, you, if you're old enough to see it and you are bro enough, apparently, uh, to see it, then that's, uh, <laughs> that's a good thing to uh, to do. Um, I uh, I think that we're going to see a lot more of it, as I say, and it's going to really influence because I, I think Fox is desperately in need of uh, this kind of um, pull. And the other thing is for the money that it costs and for the box office that it's pulled, you know, you have to make a lot of money to sort of triple your budget on a um, Avengers 2. Now, you tend to do make a lot of money on, on a film like that, but obviously if the film doesn't sort of cost that much starting out, like if it costs $58 million, and you pull in, I think last count, like $255 million, then, you know, you've better than tripled your money. And so uh, it's, yeah, it's really, really um, profitable. But again, as I say, I think art artists excel, any artist excels when placed it with limitations. So I certainly hope that when they presumably get a blank check written for the next one, that they don't lose what made it uh, made it great. Guys, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, Jason, where can people uh, see where you're at and connect with you? Um, the Twitters, Jason Diamond, one word. Uh, my website with my brother, uh, thediamondbros.com. And uh, as always frame.io we got some pretty big things coming out soon including uh your frame.io stuff's gone off it's dude, been just really wait successful. till the premiere panel comes out your brain's gonna okay. explode I, I look forward to that yes so those of you who don't know just just where do people go to find out about the frame.io stuff that you're just a part of but just for those that don't know what it is uh it is an online collaboration platform uh, so it's the uh, the web address is frame.io. Io is the extension, and uh, go sign up. We have a free tier. You can play with it. It's free forever. Uh, it's just usable enough to get you hooked for like digital drug dealers. <laughs> I think I've said in the past. Uh, so uh, yeah, check it out and um, see how you can improve your workflows because I think everyone has uh, room to improve what they're doing subcapacity and matt what about you in your uh ivory tower of esteemed academic (laughs) excellence (laughs) yes well uh speaking of which actually i just gave a a lecture uh last week to a class a special interdisciplinary class on the year 1968 and i gave a, a, a i was invited to give a lecture on uh 2001 a space odyssey which was released in 1968, which was actually super fun to do and talked about all kinds of interesting things about the film. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, so you can always find me at Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts, or uh, I've got my website, mattwallen.com, and I'm on Twitter at Matt Wallen. And that uh, 2001 film, how'd that work out? All right? <laughs> well, it worked out okay uh, for... Uh, Everybody but uh, the astronauts and the uh, computer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, if, if, there, if there was ever a uh, favorite evil computer, it's Hal. I, uh, I have a soft spot in my heart. For sure. Greatest <laughs> computer villain ever. All right, guys. Well, obviously, I'm Mike Seymour on the Twitters, but you'll find me uh, at fxguide.com. Also, uh, check out our um, stuff over at fxphd.com. We've uh, been um, putting a really good uh, term. I mentioned earlier that we were doing, they did, I think, Katana at uh, Atomic Fiction. That's one of uh, the products that we have uh, training for over at fxphd.com. But we will be back. We're, a bunch of good films are coming up. We're obviously moving uh, just as we are recording this before the uh, Oscars. So I'm just going to finish by getting your Oscar predictions that you may hear this after it's come out. But just so you know, these guys are making these predictions before it happens. So, Jason, if I'd put you on the spot, visual effects, Oscar, who are you going to give it to? I think I might have to say Star Wars, but but I would love also to see Mad Max win. Okay. Matt? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to break with uh, the Predictinator on this one, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's, it's going to go to uh, Roger Guyette and the uh, team on Star Wars Force Awakens. Well, I'm I'm hoping for uh, for any of those films, but Mad Max. Uh, I I couldn't. Um, I'd be kicked out of uh, the country if I didn't uh, wave the uh, the Aussie flag there. So, uh, and uh, Andrew Jackson is one of the guys, and he's uh, just about the nicest guy uh, in the industry and incredibly talented. So, for Andrew's sake alone, I uh, I hope uh, he wins. But uh, I want Fury Fury Road for Best Picture. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty awesome. 
That would be definitely awesome. Okay, guys, thanks so much for being with the show. Thank you for listening. And uh, there's more coming up, as I say, with a ton of other films. But we're over time. Thanks so much for being with us. See you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. 